Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to 20 Questions on Deadline. My guest today is Joel Edgerton. Starting out on television and on stage in his native Australia, Edgerton became known worldwide when he joined the Star Wars franchise as Owen Lars in Attack of the Clones and then Revenge of the Sith. This year, he's back in the role in the Disney Plus series Obi-Wan Kenobi. He also stars in 13 Lives, directed by Ron Howard, the true story in which Edgerton plays one of the divers involved in the rescue of a young football team who are trapped in a deadly system of caves in Thailand. He stars opposite Colin Farrell and Viggo Mortensen. Then there's The Stranger, which has just come out on Netflix. Directed by Thomas M. Wright, the film is also based on a true story. Edgerton plays an undercover cop, pursuing a friendship so that he might get a confession out of a child abduction suspect played by Sean Harris. Finally, Edgerton has Paul Schrader's film Master Gardener coming up. The film also stars Sigourney Weaver and premiered at the Venice Film Festival. Edgerton plays a former neo-Nazi, avoiding his violent past by focusing on gardening. So welcome to 20 Questions on Deadline. Um, it's great to have you here. And last time I saw you, we were at Cannes on the beach um, talking about The Stranger, yeah, which is possibly one of the most dark, challenging stories for an actor to play, I think. There you are, you know, being this undercover cop who has to befriend a guy who is um, very strongly suspected of having abducted a young boy and it's based on a true story. Yeah. Um, I know you optioned the book yourself and you're a producer and you were considering directing it. Um, but tell me about what it was about that story that really got you. It, it's out on uh, Netflix right now. Yeah, it is. And, you know, I first read about it in a news uh, article, you know, and as, as we say, like, you know, it's based on um, a true investigation. Um, and, it, you know, there was something in the fact that after an unsolved case of, you know, near on a decade of, of a, cri- a crime being unsolved, that, that all of a sudden that there was an answer that they'd caught a criminal. And I was very curious about it. And when it came out in court, the methods the police used to get a confession and to find physical evidence, I I found it staggering in its design. You know, normally you have an undercover um, story and we've seen a lot in movies where you have one really courageous uh, person pretending to be a criminal and say going into like a biker gang um, and they're the one vulnerable person and this is almost like the reverse or the the negative aspect of that, as in the the photo negative, where you have one criminal and an enclave of cops, and in this case, the enclave of cops were pretending 
to be uh, a, a, an extended uh, crime network in order to gain the trust and so on. So I found it fascinating on, on a level that felt to me like a real true detective uh, version of the Truman Show. Um, mm. And I say all this without, you know, un- undermining or, or sort of taking away from the significance and the impact and, and, and the heaviness of this story. But, you know, one person unaware that they're surrounded um, and trying to elicit a confession that, that could all go very wrong. Um, and in mm. this case, it, it didn't. So I, I was, it was a fascination with the case and it was a fascination with finding a way into the story that wasn't um, typical, that wasn't procedural, that wasn't exploited, exploitative. Um, and the angle that Thomas and I really, really started to really discuss was this is one of those stories where you get to see the people that we don't know quite often exist. You know, those, the, the people that help solve crimes in, in this way, they never get to take acolytes like actors do and they, they, uh, they quietly go about their work and there's a toll to it. So it was about the operators and the trauma that they suffer. When you refer to Thomas, you mean uh, Thomas M. Wright, who directed the film. Um, and yeah, he he and I were talking as well about the film at Cannes, and he mentioned what a, a toll it took on him too, just to tell this story. It's it's just a really heavy duty story, and um, and just it's brilliant to be able to to see what those people, like you say, that don't get the accolades, what the reality of what they're doing, they're actually heroes, truly, mm. what they go through. You know, I, um, I, I stand on a mark and say a bunch of lines that are written down by somebody else and I make a movie and then I go and get celebrated on a red carpet. And I know we're talking about completely different jobs, but the guys in this case, some of them, um, the the pat on the back they got for doing a great job was it was a closed room with like four or five people in it um no cameras no record of it of just a kind of a handshake in a closed room and then it's back to another case or back into another situation that has its own compressive uh tension to it Mm. I have to say, though, the the value of, of course, it's very separate, but to me, the value of storytelling and art is is um, it's insurmountable. Like you can't, it has no end to it. It's um, the one thing that really affects people. So it's all about presenting something like that and and making people understand the the depth and breadth of it. So what you're doing is is remarkable and shouldn't be underplayed that mm-hmm. so I'm just throwing that out there because I know that you're um your classic um self-deprecating Aussie but that's extraordinary about it too I find is you know is this attempt to tell a, you know a, a story that is familiar which we've all seen undercover cop stories and, and you know, it really struck me early on that, um, you know, in talking to an undercover operator about the usual tropes like uh, Stockholm Syndrome and, 
you know, doubting the, the guilt of the person that's your mark or your target and so on. And I, I'm sure those things have existed in other cases. But, but the idea that we would lean too far into obvious cliches or tropes of these stories, you know, in this case, I think everybody involved agreed that, that they, they found it unbearable to spend time with this person that, that Henry is based on that there was no question in their mind that, that there was something rotten about him, um, mm. was guilty, um, and that there was no empathy or no blurring of any sense of friendship, more a case of like how do you keep laughing at this guy's jokes and how do you keep nodding and agreeing that he's an intelligent... It would make you feel just nauseous, like you'd feel broken. Yeah. It's just such a, a separation from who you really are. Mm -hmm. awful um i want to talk about another real life story that you told this year 13 lives um now yeah there's so much juice in that story too is in a very different way in that um the public really did know about this because it's the story of the the cave rescue of the the thai football team yeah and um you play the doctor that's brought in to anesthetize the kids, which is for your character an unthinkable move. He's like, Oh, I, how can I be responsible that these kids are going to die? Mm -hmm. Um, I wondered how much interaction you had with the real person that you're playing. Uh, obviously, there's documentaries, there's so much news coverage. Um, I don't know how willing everyone is to talk. Um, especially when you're making a, a sort of or sort of fictionalized account. Mm. Um, it's pretty accurate, I think. Um, and working with Ron Howard directing. And you've got Vigo Mortensen and it, amazing Colin Farrell, great, great cast too. It, it is an incredible cast and, and the obvious ones obviously Colin and, and, and uh, Vigo. And I was excited about that because I really have admired those guys on screen for a long time before getting that chance with them. Um, but like incredible also just to work with a bunch of Thai actors that in a normal scenario, you you imagine that may never happen um, because, you know, English language movies are generally, you know, shoot them in Australia or England or America. And um, to have like a, a cast that, you know, to, to serve this story, obviously Ron hired some incredible Thai actors. So that was a real pleasure. Um, and working with Ron uh, was just fantastic, you know, and I can't say enough nice things about him as a person and as a director who's able to keep multiple characters and stories alive in, in a real high wire act Um you know, these sort of things that he's been known for being good at, you know, this sort of re the rescue movie um, or the survival story. Um, but, you know, um, Harry is, a, you know, the character I play, Harry is a complete hero. And, you know, it's interesting without, without going into a big discussion about it, there's also like, you know, you get a true story that's clearly... I think everybody knew when they watched the news, if they had a mind to it, to go, oh, there'll be a movie about this one day. Mm. Um, 
And of course, it's such a fantastic story that there's like three or four projects, wonderful documentary by Jimmy and, and Chai. Um, I've seen that, it's great. The Netflix series and of course there's there's our movie and there's another movie and there'll probably be, you know, probably not the end of it. Um, but what you get is, you know, and it's interesting that you get these people go swooping into a like a place and going, hey, I want to buy the rights to, you know, your life story so I can tell this as a film. And of course, this was a case of um, a bunch of people getting bought by different areas and I actually for that reason, again, not to go into it or not to gripe about it, I didn't really get, wasn't allowed to have access to Harry. We had access mm -hmm. to Rick and we had access to um, to John and we had access to Jason Mallinson. Um, but I found my way to Harry after shooting because I just felt like I really needed to meet him and I figured like once we'd finished making the movie, I wasn't sort of encroaching on any life rights, legal issues or anything. And, and you know, I, I had solace and comfort and uh, in the fact that I had Harry's book, which was his, mm. his spewing out of the entire story from his point of view. So I felt like I knew enough and the script gave me enough to do what I had to do. And I, now I can say I, with pleasure that I've got to know Harry and in my pile of books out there for my children, I have uh, a children's book that's written by him really <laughs> yeah and we had a meal together in adelaide uh you know a few months after the shooting and and um he's an incredible man that that decision he had to make was mm. uh had such gravity to it you know like do mm. the thing to help the kids that might actually kill the kids and what does that mean to his life the life obviously the kids the parents the political and legal ramifications of it but just the internal struggle of, of wondering, all right, I'll take this risk knowing they might all die, but mm -hmm. then I might then be the physical contact that causes the death anyway. And, and uh, I know that that was a big wrestle for him and um, he took the chance and thankfully it was like, you know, in the, in the case of the kids and the coach, it was a 100% success and what a relief it's extraordinary i can't imagine that level of pressure he felt it's just yeah. unthinkable um and then you have master gardener as well where you're playing um a neo-nazi who is sort of escaping his violent past by um deeply diving into the minutiae of gardening and sort of <laughs> trying to embrace something so pure after being part of something so awful. Um, and you're working with Sigourney Weaver in that film. Um, tell us a little bit about that experience. Oh, well, that was incredible for a few particular reasons, you know, I, Obviously working with Sigourney again was like a big draw card. I got to work with an excellent uh, young actor, Quintessa Swindell, which I always get excited about diving into a project with, with the next generation because there's always something to learn, probably more than there ever is to teach, you know. Um, and, you know, so the actors were one thing. Then 
you know, obviously the the young Joel that went to drama school right around the time that he was obsessing about 70s cinema, got to work with Paul Schrader, who, you know, had written these movies that were, that I was just educating myself about that I'd missed because I was so young at the time, but Raging Fool and Taxi Driver, that he was very much a part of setting the foundation for these complicated male characters that, that I identified with wanting to play as an actor, you know, wanted to chew on something like that. And then, you know, 20 something years later to get the phone call about being one of his guys was pretty awesome. Um, hmm. And then as a filmmaker, I learned so much because Paul has this methodology at the moment where in order to keep um, ownership of his stories and his edit, um, 100% is about keeping a budget low enough that he can keep that, that um, you know, ownership and, and, and it means a lean shoot, which is familiar to me coming from low-budget films in Australia. But watching him, old-school fashion, understand how he was going to build a scene um, and shoot a movie in 20 days without it ever feeling rushed was kind of extraordinary because shooting a movie in 20 days for anyone who is not familiar with how the schedules work and page counts and all that stuff is shooting 20 days is like being chased down the street by a bear. You know, there's, there's a sense of panic and looking over your shoulder and wondering, shit, did I get that right? And well, anyway, we're moving on to the next thing, you know? Um, and he just handled it with a certain like precise calm that, um, I felt like I was in really safe hands. Um, mm. That was a really good experience. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I just was laughing because I remembered somebody, I don't, I don't know, someone might be able to tell us in the, if they read this or see this and have a comment section, but I want to know who it was that said this, that anyone who loves films and sausages should never watch either of them be made. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like realizing I was talking about oh how you make a movie. It's like people don't really care, and if they step on set, they're like, "Takes you this long to shoot a scene?" <laughs> it's so true. It does. Once you look behind the curtain, it you can never really enjoy something in quite the same way. Your mind is always going. Yeah, and for the same reason, I often think you know. I'm, I'm, I wrestle with this question of how much actors should let uh, the audience know in, in, in scenarios like this, you know, talking about interviews and about, you know, letting the audience sort of behind the curtain of the magic show. Part of me yeah. feels like that shit should sort of be reserved or preserved for a kind of a mystery, you know, that the story speaks for itself. The actor plays the role and yeah. and we get invested or not. Um, but for me to tell you that I, you know, squeezed my entire body through the head of a tennis racket to play a role is like, you know, I, I do, I, as I say, I wrestle with it because some people do want to know that stuff. They do, especially um, people that read Deadline, you know, they really want the inside track. Oh, okay, so I squeezed it. my body through the <laughs> head of not just a tennis racket but a 70s little wooden tennis racket. Um, no, no, I, you know, as I say, I, you know, I kind of, it's, it's weird because on one hand I, I find it weird, but I actually enjoy reading that stuff as well. 
Yeah. Curious. Yeah. I'm curious. And you, you know, you would, you would pay a, you'd pay a hefty sum to, um, you know, unlock the brain of certain actors that mm. you've over the years, you know, living and dead. You know, when you were just talking about Paul Schrader, when you were at drama school and, you know, he kind of informed your idea of these complex male characters. I was thinking about one of my favourite shows of all time, even now, The Secret Life of Us. <laughs> it's like this, for those that don't know, it's like this amazing Australian drama series from, what, the 90s? Yeah, Maybe? well, it was... The pilot was shot actually in the year 2000. Oh, it feels like, God, that makes me feel old because it feels like the yeah, 90s. Early, <laughs> early 2000s was we shot the first couple of seasons. You know, that what was amazing yeah. about that is like, you know, we I was joking around on set with someone the other night about, you know, if you look at all these successful Australian actors like Margot Robbie and, Russell Crowe and Guy Pearce and Chris Hemsworth and all. There were two TV shows that basically were like the fertile hotbed for all these actors. And they were Home and Away and Neighbours. I saw them all, every episode, twice a day in and England I, growing up. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I used to sort of get asked a lot, you know, were you ever on one of those shows? And I was like, oh, no, but a friend of mine had been on one of those shows. And I desperately at the time, you know, when I was a young person interested in acting I was like well I would I would love to be on one of those shows and I, I just was I still am in in, in in some way like a little bit wasn't really built for those shows as in not not like as an actor but like I just felt like I wasn't like I didn't look like the right really handsome fit surfer guy and I didn't really belong on Ramsey Street you know and and for all of my desire for that at the time, I'm kind of happy it didn't happen because my TV show, I felt was like a really precious thing. So yeah. And, and it felt like a different kind of TV show and it felt like... Um, it was different. Learn, you know, and, and I'm doing TV yeah. at the moment and I, and I keep reminding myself TV is a real chance. Like you do a film and it's an hour and a half of screen time if, if you're even the lead character. But if you're doing TV, you're like standing in front of a camera for so long, for so many weeks, that you, you, you're bound to learn something, even if it's from your own mistakes. You just said you're doing TV. Are you talking about Dark Matter, the series where you're stuck in a multiverse situation? Yeah, I describe it as like a, a, a kind of a multiverse for the middle-aged man. <laughs> what does that look like? <laughs> well, I mean, like, um, it's not it's not a comedy, but you know, all of the multiverse seems like multiverse is sort of like uh, gluten free at the moment. It's like the popular thing, right? You know, and, and of course, it's you can go down a wormhole looking at YouTube videos about videos about physics, you know, brains telling mm -hmm. you that the multiverse is real. Um, I am having trouble dealing with one version of my life, letting alone if I had access to other oh, ones, gotcha. <laughs> they'd be even worse. Or, or um, But anyway, they're, they're, you know, most of them are like, you know, they're Spider-Man or they're Doctor Strange, they're, they're superhero worlds. Um, what was the one recently? There's another one. 
Oh, everything, everywhere, all at once. Oh, every everything, everywhere, all at once, which which was yeah. just like a you know a mad smoothie of awesome, <laughs> um, and sausage fingers, <laughs> and <laughs> what a great movie. But ours yeah. is sort of like there's real human depth to it. Not to say those other things don't have that, but but it's domestic in some ways. A guy finds out that he's been put somewhere that everybody seems to know him and he doesn't know any of these people um, and some event has happened and starts to question whether he's insane because everybody tells him his life is not what he thinks his life is, that he's, he's not married and he doesn't have a kid, but it feels so real to him, only to find out that he's been put there by a different version of himself and that he's the different version of himself has chosen to take over his family because he envies the grass being greener on that side of it. Mm-hmm. And and you know, I, I could I could waste time trying to explain what it is, but so I get to play uh, not just two, but more than two versions of my of the same character. That sounds really mind bending. Yeah, and and situate and and you know what? I, there's been a great pleasure in you know quite often you come to scenes and you're like, okay, I've been through this before, so I have access to some understanding of how to play, maybe play the scene, the one way of playing the scene, because like I've been there, I've done that, I've lost somebody or I've fallen in love or any of this stuff. But I'm constantly on a daily basis hitting these situations where I'm like, I don't think it, I don't think I would ever be in this situation. Mm. Yeah. yeah, life is strange. I do myself. with what? Like you know, doing having a conversation with myself. I keep joking. I'm like, oh. I'm excited to work with Joel Edgerton. and I hear he's really good. <laughs> when you, <laughs> when you nice start talking about yourself in the third person, <laughs> we know it's all game over. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to have to do with Chevy Chase. <laughs> I heard he does that. I would love to have that conversation. Jeremy, I'm pleased to meet you. (laughs) I've never had that conversation with Chevy Chase, but now it's on the bucket list. Um, So wait, you finished working with George Clooney on The Boys in the Boat. That's done. So yeah, I'm really excited to see that. Uh, It's about the Washington rowing team who eventually, um, true story, defeat a Nazi based rowing team i don't know the details entirely yet a bunch of kind of you know ragtag boys from washington state um which is not really known as a prestigious rowing uh state you know just on the heels or or in the midst of the, the depression um a few of them joined the rowing team because they knew that they would get a roof over their heads and they would get a job so they weren't really there for the rowing but they were physically capable and they got in the team. And that team, I guess, out of, you know, fueled by desperation and their own sort of, you know, personal stories, became stronger than their, their college's varsity team. So the junior team got sent to the Nationals um, and whoever won the Nationals that year got to go and row in the Olympics. And that year was Hitler's Olympics. And, uh, you know, without creating too many spoilers, you know, sports movies generally 
follow the people who end up <laughs> happy at the end. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's 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 extraordinary what they did. And I'll tell you what's kind of cool is because I, I was like, oh, I don't really know about rowing. I know how to row. Um, I know that people do it. <laughs> I can see it by rowing right now, actually. And um, But there's something about, like, I mean, you know, I hate to, invoke my you know my own my own film here but warrior you know is a film that's about fighting but it's not really about fighting you know fighting is is the backdrop what it's about is about the reparation of family um and so people who turn their nose down at ufc fighting if they watch the film might actually just go oh my god i i love that but they loved it because it told them something about humans and the need for family to to keep glued together and so on. And I think that Boys in the Boat, the garnish is this kind of really attractive world of you know, 1930s clothes and suits and rowing gear and, you know, that sort of mm-hmm. boat bed aesthetic. And it's, but it's just a backdrop. What it's about is about a boy, young Callum Turner, who's beautiful, um, learning after being abandoned by his own father and family to uh, accept being part of another family after feeling uh, like discarded. Um, And because of these things that the story is really about, hopefully that audiences, whether they love rowing or know about rowing or not, can really connect and get moved by it. So I have to crack on with the uh, 20 questions. It's all in the title of the Mm. podcast. I'm going to, I know you didn't know that this was coming, so. (laughs) Okay, all right, go. All right. Where do you get your fearlessness, fearlessness from? Uh, My family. Mm. All right. What was the moment you realised you wanted to do this job? When I was at the Opera House watching a play called The Crucible in uh, my grade 11 year at school. Oh, that's a great play. Um, What or who was an early childhood inspiration? Indiana Jones. (laughs) Oh, my God, you're not the only person that said that either. That's such a great answer. Um, Who was on your wall? What posters? When you were a kid, I hate to say this, I had I had James Dean and Marilyn Monroe. And the reason I say I hate to say it is because I felt like somebody told me they were icons, and I just <laughs> I just stuck them on my wall. Yeah, that's kind of cool. It's different um, in that day and age. Anyway, um, what was the first movie you ever saw in a theatre? Uh, Return of the Jedi. Oh, how apropos, considering your Star Wars. The Roxy Theatre in Australia, which they tried to tear down. I think people are trying to save it. But I was in my pyjamas because my dad <laughs> woke my brother and I up and said, we're going on a like a surprise. And we saw a return of the Jedi. Oh, my God, your dad sounds really cool. He is, yeah. I love that he did that. Yeah. That's brilliant. And then look what happened. What I mean, what do your family think of the fact that you're now part of the Star Wars franchise and actually yeah. have been while they must be like what it's weird that that whole thing because i was a big star wars fan yeah and suddenly george lucas is like you know scouting around sydney to shoot 
some more episodes of it. You know, the episodes one, two, or three. And yeah. my brother becomes Ewan McGregor's stunt double. What? I didn't know that. Yeah. So. Oh, my God. I go to drama school at the same year my brother quits university and secretly becomes a stunt person, starts training with stunt guys. Secretly. Well, but he didn't want to tell mum and dad because they were, you know. They yeah. Said, He's going to electrical engineering college degree and he quit and he starts dragging crash mats and ropes around for these stunt guys. And anyway, he goes off do, 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 to become a stunt guy. I go off to drama school and then we both get involved in working in the film business. And um, and then Star Wars comes along and without it being a like, oh, you know, it's not like two Edgertons, you know, the two Edgerton, you know, discount deal. He separately got a job as Ewan McGregor's stunt double and I got a job as, you know, uh, <laughs> the galaxy's greatest moisture farmer. And, um, and, uh, and so how weird is that? It's so weird, and I love everything about that story. It's brilliant. Um, <laughs> what was a TV or film character you wanted to be? Indiana Jones. Brilliant. I had to give you the same answer twice, but it's true. No, I totally relate to that. I think it's great. Um, I was obsessed with those movies. In fact, I can probably quote them all verbatim, which is a bit weird. Mm. Um, <laughs> what is the weirdest job you've ever had? <laughs> being an actor <laughs> it is it's, I, it's totally the weirdest job I was saying this the other day you know what I'll give you an example I was in a makeup truck and I step outside and there's a guy who's a stunt guy walking around looking for something on the ground I'm like what have you lost and he goes a sideburn <laughs> where else would you hear that that's so good. So strangers that are not your own partner. That kind of like it's a weird job. Anyway, next. Yeah, no, it's super weird. When when was the last time you cried? Uh, at an interview in Venice, which was super um, awkward. Oh, can I ask why that prompted? I was you talking to... about the birth of my children. Oh. And, uh, I think uh, there's stuff that. I haven't really like, like it was not, nothing is super traumatic, but I think it was the tension leading up to it. And I was talking, because I was talking about 13 lives and um, mm. my children were born one week before I got to finish shooting that because they came really early. And every mm. time for some reason I talk about that week, <laughs> I get like, uh, I get choked up about it. And it's like, it, it, they're fine and nothing bad happened. But I think I was just so tense and worried. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's so like yeah. a bit of PTSD from that experience. I was, at, I was at a round table in Venice doing an interview with like six or seven journalists and I just couldn't talk. <laughs> I was like, oh, Joel. Sorry. Yeah. That's, but that's so, it's so endearing that you feel so deeply about that experience. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Okay, you're packing your nuclear bunker. What do you take to watch? Oh, shit. Oh, that's such a good question. What do I take to watch? You know, I'd, I'd, if I could take two, I mean, obviously, the, if I, I was just thinking I've got to get it like a really long TV series, like The Wire or, or, or you know, Sopranos. Sopranos. Or, yeah, yeah. A DVD of A Fish Tank. 
you know, or a fire, something that it's not a story. It's just something that I could look at and get lost in, you know. Your kids would be so pissed off with you. In other words, the kids, they'd be like filling a suitcase with Peppa Pig. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, who is your dream dinner companion, living or dead? These are good questions. Why, thank you. I should have sent them to you ahead of time. Living or dead? Like a stranger, obviously, because if I, if I, if I, if I, you know, if it was anybody, I'd, t- I'd take, you know, my partner. But if it was like some stranger, oh, Alan Watts. <laughs> okay, why? Have you ever listened to Alan Watts? He's no. He's gone, sadly. Incredible philosopher, and um, I feel like he would just make my life better, and he he'd help me avoid any depression or anything like that. Do yourself a favor, listen to Alan Watts. All right, I'm going to. Go down a wormhole. He just breaks down life in a really fascinating way. And he was a dysfunctional person himself. And I heard he was a good drinker. So. Okay, so relatable. Yeah, okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to check him out. Um, what is the toughest scene you've ever had to play? Ooh, another one. Another good one. Toughest scene I've ever had to play. Uh, I reckon probably the first time I was ever on camera. Like, mm. Because I was terrified. And I was terrified to get it wrong. Um, and it was felt like it was all or nothing. Like if I didn't do a good job, that I'd never get another job ever again. Thankfully, um, my, my character had to be panicked and ang- fully anxious and terrified. Um, so I just was, I think I just, I just was. <laughs> <laughs> they were like, this guy's really good. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I really landed on my feet because that first scene, you know, out of drama school that I got to shoot was with uh, Ben Mendelsohn. Oh, really? Wait, what were you in? Wait, what was this for? Uh, he was starring in this sort of like extra long episode of a TV series called Police Rescue. Mm. Um, and I was his little brother and we were robbing a video store and uh, I get killed. <laughs> I was oh. I, I was sent home at 11am on my first day of acting because <laughs> I was dead. <laughs> and, and, and me dying kind of fueled the rage that led to the rest of the episode. So I was basically yeah. playing catalyst for rage. And um, But I got to work with Ben and... and, and uh, Legend, Ben Mendelsohn, love him. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, that's so cool. Um, advice you'd give your younger self? Be kind. Hmm. I, okay. I keep thinking about this now that I'm a dad. Just like, you know, I think empathy, something about empathy, you know, a lesson about empathy, just like hmm. walking in other people's shoes. I think it's like um, it would it would spill over in a whole bunch of other things that would be good. Absolutely. Um, a time that you were starstruck. I saw my biggest celebrity sighting all time. Okay. Well, because I grew up in a tiny town and nobody ever, you know, we never saw anybody from telly or, or film. And we went on a family trip to London, went to the Hard Rock Cafe, and around the corner was Kirk Cameron. 
I don't know who Kirk Cameron is. Is that awful? He was a TV star in the 80s who's now become a notoriously controversial sort of evangelical uh, Christian. Oh. But he was the biggest heartthrob. Any teen magazine usually had some picture of Kirk Cameron on it. Oh, yes. I've just Googled. Now I know who you're talking about. Yes. Last drunk. And he was just hanging out at the most touristy place in the world. Yeah, oh, he maybe hanging around so people would take photos with him. Um, oh, it sounds like it, yeah. The, the, the coolest Hollywood sighting I've had once I finally, you know, got myself to Hollywood. I was at the Four Seasons Hotel going to see some friends and I walked past a table and Elizabeth Taylor was having an evening nightcap with James Earl Jones. Oh, my God. Sitting quietly <laughs> having a glass of wine or something and I was like wow wow oh my god yes yeah. that is insane wouldn't you love to be a fly on the wall for that conversation yeah brilliant <laughs> um like she's having a chat with Darth Vader yeah exactly <laughs> should we have another row <laughs> don't force choke me I'll have another <laughs> um okay so what is your proudest working achievement so far i think directing my first movie Mm. like it it really topped everything for me is that i that i saw it through that my instinct you know for the most part was in the right place and good um, and I was really proud of it because it was all me, you know, like, I mean, I, as in I wrote it, directed it, and, and it felt like it was it was the biggest accomplishment for me to that point. Hmm. Who is your hero currently? Should I go on to the next question? Because I want to go on. Yeah, you can come back to it or. I can think of two things at the same time, but I like to think that somehow some some delivery system is going to go. <laughs> that is sometimes how it works. Like if you walk away from a thing, your brain just goes, bring, here it is. Yeah. It's so weird. Um, what job would you be doing if this hadn't worked out? Well, the other one might not have worked out either. Because I still do it and I'm not excellent at it, but I, I would love to be just painting. Oh, yeah? Painter. Oh. Um, and I still have hold out hopes that one day, not that I would build a career out of it, but that I'll have a big studio and I'll be doing a lot of it. Um, but I'd love to do that. Do you like landscapes or portraits or oils? What, what, what's your thing? Well, the, that was the problem. See, when I went to drama school, the other option was I was going to go and do formal, you know, art school, which I never mm. did. So I never learned to paint with oils. Mm. Um, and I've tried to, and they're really challenging. So I've acrylic and ink mm. um, and mainly portraits and things, not landscapes. Mm. Yeah. I went to art school and I'm a portraits person. Really? But I love oils. I encourage you to revisit them. I would like to just like take some time to learn or, you know, I'm a big believer in, um, you know, just one-on-one stuff. Like just go find somebody who could do a bunch mm. of time with me, just 
you know, once a week, just teach me about how to mix colors, how to let them dry, how to build upon them. And, um, but I, I, you know, I had a funny time with a guy uh, on a set once and it was like, I do a bit of painting. Oh yeah, I do a bit of painting. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, you know, he's like, show me, you know, what you, you know, and I, and I, and I saw his picture first and I was like, okay. It's like having a chat with like Pavarotti and go, yeah, I do a bit of singing. <laughs> you know, and then this portrait was so extraordinary. And I went, wow, okay, that's up. That's the next level kind of stuff. I just like, you know. I, I mean, that yeah. that was mean of him though to to uh, do the whole, oh, I do a bit of knowing that he's a genius. Very classy. <laughs> yeah, I play a little bit of guitar. You know? <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> um, okay, last one. What is your greatest fear, personally or professionally? Oh, death. Yeah, now it's dying. Really? Um, is that since you became a dad? Has that yeah, changed? only because I'm a dad. You know, mm. I never used to be afraid of it. I get in planes and go, okay, if this thing goes down, I'm all good. But I was on a plane on my way to, to from Ron's set to get there a day before the babies were born because they were really different. It was back in Sydney. Hmm. Uh, and uh, the producer got me a private jet because I had to shoot late. And because of COVID, the, the amount of commercial flights had diminished and the latest one was like 6 p.m. I was like, cool, private jet, get there a day before the babies were born. Got on the jet, it was an old, old Cessna, bumpy as hell. And yeah. I was terrified that I was not going to see it happen. Um, yeah, so I'm now I'm like, it's not so much I'm afraid of death, it's more that I'm afraid of not being around for them. Mm. Yeah, that's a great answer. I have so many people who say death, but... Um, it's really about their own existence. But I think being a parent really switches gears on that stuff. Yeah, and I'm not afraid of death of career or anything like that. I mean, I, I figure if that happens, it's, uh, there's, there'd be a reason for it. And um, and uh, it's up to me to make sure that doesn't happen, you know? Yeah. Well, for what it's worth, I don't see that ever happening. Um, but <laughs> thank you so much. Joel Edgerton for being on the podcast today. Thank you again, Joel Edgerton, for being on the show. Check out the podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and read our awards line magazine in print and at deadline.com.